Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. My name's Liam. I'm one of the leaders at Christchurch London, and I get to put on these days, which is great. These are things I love doing. Uh, On Sundays, we often don't get to go as deep into various subjects as we would like to, and there are subjects that really require a bit more depth than 35 minutes can give them. And so rather than doing them badly on a Sunday, we uh, do them badly on a Saturday. (laughs) No, hopefully not. Uh, we, we, We take time outside of our Sundays where we can hopefully go a bit more in depth, have opportunities to discuss things, um, to do it in a bit more of an open environment where we can ask questions. Uh, if you don't understand things, we can talk further. We can wrestle over some things over a prolonged period of time. And so that's why doing the Trinity today is uh, hopefully going to be good fun uh, and enjoyable for us and hopefully very helpful to us as well. And a couple of weeks ago, I preached and um, I was on, preaching on John 17. And I was like, oh man, to do this, I need to explain something of the Trinity, which uh, obviously you, only need to, you can only go into a tiny little amount on a Sunday. And so I just felt like... I'm so glad that we've got today where we can go deeper and fill in all the gaps that I didn't get to do on last Sunday's sermon. Um, But hopefully it'll be a day where you can ask questions as well. Just to give you an idea of what I'm hoping to get out of today, um, I am hoping that today we will be able to talk about the Trinity in a way that grapples with some of the big and difficult questions, but also helps us to understand how relevant it is to our day-to-day life as Christians. In fact, actually, if you turn to skip past the first couple of pages of your notes and the first one with some boxes on it. There's a quote by Augustine, the um, church father, who said this, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. Talking about the Trinity. And I think he's right. Um, Essentially he's saying, look, um, it is very easy to make mistakes in this area. And the mistakes that we make are serious mistakes because we are actually talking about something that matters greatly, the character and the nature of God. But actually, if you really take time to explore the Trinity, it will be the most beneficial thing you can do. And I often find that when I talk to Christians, some people are like, actually, the Trinity is just too complex to get a head round, so I won't bother. And it's that fear, it's the first part of Augustine's statement that makes them think, I don't dare even talk about this, ask about this, answer questions about this, because I may end up either just getting very confused or thinking something that's probably not actually true. And if you look back through church history, there are fierce debates over the Trinity, um, and people worry about getting it wrong. But I think if fear stops us exploring the nature of God and the Trinity, then actually we miss out on a whole load of good things uh, that God wants to reveal to us. And so I stand here today sort of experiencing both the fear and the excitement because I just think I don't have all the answers to all the questions that you may have and certainly all the questions that I have. Um, There may be moments where I say something and then think, oh, actually, maybe I need to rephrase that. I'm not sure that's quite right. I may struggle today to articulate something of the Trinity, but I don't want to let fear of getting it wrong stop us getting into to this important subject and hopefully learning some great things about the person of God as we go today. Um, so just to give you an idea of where I'm hoping to pitch this, uh, this will be deeper and harder than a Sunday sermon. Um, we will look at things in far more depth than a Sunday sermon. It will be rigorous at times. It will make our heads hurt at times. But I'm not aiming for it to be like 
MA university lecture sort of level. I, I want it to be rooted in day-to-day -day life. I want it to be helpful to us. And so at any point today, if you have questions, whether you feel that I'm um, not being rigorous enough and you want to ask deeper questions, go for it. Or if you just feel like this is going over my head, Liam, I don't know what that word means, and I suspect you don't know what it means either. If you're feeling that at any point, do ask me. Uh, I'm very happy to try and make things as accessible as possible, because if we don't do that, then well, it's a waste of a day for all of us, um, to be honest. Uh, there will be stuff that we won't get to cover today, um, but I have put some recommended reading on the final page of the uh, notes, and there's plenty more I can recommend if you want more. And do ask questions, do talk in the breaks, um, and let's see if we can get through this together. Fred Sanders, in his book on the Trinity, a brilliant book, uh, The Deep Things of God, he says this, the Trinity isn't ultimately for anything any more than God is the purpose of anything. Just as you wouldn't ask what purpose God serves or what function he fulfills, it makes no sense to ask what the point of the Trinity is or what the purpose the Trinity serves. The Trinity isn't for anything beyond itself because the Trinity is God. If we don't take this as our starting point, everything we say about the practical relevance of the Trinity could lead to one colossal misunderstanding. Thinking of God, the Trinity, as a means to some other end, as if God were the Trinity in order to make himself useful. But God, the Trinity, is the end, the goal, the telos. It's just a Greek word that means, well, goal, really. I don't know why I needed to put that in two languages, but there we go. The omega, the end, in himself and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation. Essentially what he's saying is this, very often we can come to the idea of the Trinity and we think, what's the point of the Trinity? What does the Trinity do? As if actually God is a means to an end. What he's saying is actually the starting point is not to say, what does the Trinity do? We will get there, and actually the second half of the day I hope will be really practical. Um, but actually he says, when we think about the Trinity, we're not thinking of God as a means to an end, we're thinking about God himself. This is exploring the very nature of God. We're not saying, what's the point of God? What's God all about? We're saying, who is God? What is he like? And A.W. Tozer uh, says this phrase, which I think is really helpful. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I love that quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It reveals a lot about who we are, where we are with God, what matters to us. So today we are really trying to shape our understanding of who God is. We'll get to how that affects us, um, but I really just want to start with who God is in his person. And I want to begin with a thought experiment, and you will probably know the answer to this if you heard and remember possibly my sermon from a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I wanted to start by thinking about the nature of God and the foundational idea of the Trinity. If you had to pick one word to sum up who God is and who he has eternally been, what kind of word would you pick? If you had to pick one word to sum up who God is and who he has eternally been, what word would you pick? Love. Love. Yeah, I was hoping that wouldn't be the first one, because <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> You're right. You're spot on right. Yeah. But often what people say is creator or um, redeemer or these sorts of things. And these are all, of course, great words um, and all very helpful words. But none of them quite sum up how God has always been in the same way that love does. Actually, if you were to phrase the question a different way and say, what was God doing before creation? That would be quite an interesting question to ask. Because actually, if we think that God is primarily and eternally creator, then his identity as creator is actually dependent on something else. It's dependent on creation. He can't be a creator without creation. So there was a point when God wasn't creator, but became creator, right? 
So God is somehow dependent on something else. So if you ask, well, what has God eternally been? What was he before creation? Creator can't quite sum up his eternal being, nor can Redeemer before there was anything for him to redeem. It must be something else that God was and was doing before creation. And the answer, I think, as Tim said, is love. John chapter 17. In fact, if you have a Bible, um, you may want to... This is a challenge. We were hoping to have tables, but they had two, so (laughs) that wouldn't have been enough for us all to share. Um, So it may be a challenge with Bibles and notes and those sorts of things, Uh, but you may want to have a Bible to hand to flick to them verses from time to time. John chapter 17 and verse 24 says this. I'll read this one. Um, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, talking about his disciples, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before creation... God the Father loved Jesus the Son. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 to 8 says the same. I'll give you the the answer there, really. (laughs) God is love. Eternally, when we think about who God is, he is love. His identity doesn't depend on creation. His identity doesn't depend on having people to rule or people to redeem. He is and always has been love. God the Father has eternally loved the Son. And actually, I said in my sermon the other week, um, when we think about the idea of love, love is not an abstract thing. You don't just love in some kind of vague, abstract form. Love always has an object. So for God to eternally be love, that must have meant that there was eternally someone or something for him to love. So what did God love when God was the only thing there? Well, there must be some kind of plurality within God that gives him an object, a person, to love. And Jesus says eternally that was, that was him. The Father loved him. God is eternally love. He is eternally relationship. He is community. And I won't go back over all of this. Uh, If you weren't there the other week when I preached on John 17, Prayer for Unity, do check that out because I think hopefully it'll be helpful. And then if you check that out, it'll boost my podcast stats and I'll get more listeners than Andy Tilsey did. So that's uh, that's always a bonus for me and I'll get that out of this podcast so that he doesn't know I've uh, put you onto that. But essentially what I argue there just very quickly is that all of us long for this thing which can only be found in God, which is unity in diversity. And I I argued in that talk really that um, that God is unity in diversity that's what he is he is one being but there is community in this one being and he has created us as diverse people as we'll go on to see later for uh, to experience something of that unity in diversity and all of philosophy is longing for unity in diversity I think that's one of the things that we crave in our society even the word university which is the place of greatest learning it means unity in diversity That's the thing we all seek, but are unable to find without relationship with our creator, who is ultimately unity and diversity. So before anything else was, God was love. God was loving relationship, which I think is the foundation for the idea of the Trinity. You with me so far? Great. So if you were to look through the Bible, 
you would struggle to find any one place, I think, where the Trinity is explained and unpacked in real clarity. There is no one part of the Bible that says, this is how the Trinity is, and this is how it works, and here are all the implications, boom, in one chapter, which is a real shame, because it made my job a lot easier today. But what we do find is a whole load of hints, which as they come together throughout all of Scripture, you look back on retrospectively and you think, oh, that kind of never really made sense. But now with this framework, this understanding of God as unity and diversity, three in one, suddenly all these things that were mysterious become, uh, they, they, they make sense in a new light. So if you look through the Bible, in the Old Testament we find no one place where it explains very clearly God is three in one, but we find all sorts of hints that lead us to that way. So next page. (coughs) I'm going to go quite quickly on this, but do stop me if you have questions. I don't want to just ignore you and assume you're with me. Um, The Old Testament, I think, lays the foundation for Trinitarianism, so the idea that God is trinity three in one actually the old testament is fiercely monotheistic uh, that word monotheistic it means um one one god there is a fierce belief that there is one god as opposed to many gods and one of the key verses in the old testament deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is a prayer that jews would pray regularly it's called the shema and it's um a prayer that really expresses the fact that god is one it's um hero israel the lord our god the lord is one and really that is the cry of the old testament particularly because the Old Testament writers lived in a period where they were coming up against various nations who believed in many different gods and in fact their, their idea was that um, if one nation defeated another nation then they would get all their gods and sort of just pile them in and you just rack up this whole load of gods like Pokemon and that was sort of how <laughs> gods worked in the Old Testament and standing against that Israel was saying no, 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 it's not the case that there are many gods God is one now actually I would put it to you that um, This verse is not ultimately about the inner workings of God. It's about the supremacy of God. And if you look at the way that this verse has been um, interpreted throughout the centuries, throughout thousands of years actually, it wasn't really until the first century AD that the rabbis started interpreting this as if it was saying God is um, one and therefore cannot be trinity. It wasn't until about the first century AD that the rabbis started saying, no, this is about the inner workings of God. Actually, until about that point, people interpreted it more as if it was saying that God is supreme. He is the one who matters. He is the one, of course, he is the only one that exists. But this is talking about his supremacy, not his internal workings. So this is the background of the Old Testament. It fiercely argues that God is one, but that doesn't actually preclude the idea of Trinity. And when you look through scripture, particularly in the Old Testament at the moment, we find a number of hints that suggest that actually the Old Testament writers were happy with talking about a weird, mysterious plurality within this one God. And they didn't explain it, and they didn't have one point where they said, I know this is a bit weird, but let me just make this make real sense, and here's an analogy to help you. But they did talk about God in ways that suggested that though he is one, fiercely one, there is a plurality, a mysterious plurality about him. Here are just a few ideas. We're going to skip through some of them because some of them we'll come back to quickly. But creation. In the creation accounts, God creates, God, the singular create God, creates by his word with the spirit hovering over the waters. We'll come back to the creation narrative a little bit later, so I won't dwell on this too much. But it says that God created everything, and then God speaks and says, let us create mankind in our image. God says, let us. 
By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by his breath. Actually, that word breath can be translated spirit, by the breath of his mouth. Right at the very first page of the Bible, you've got this one God who is mysteriously able to talk about himself in some kind of plural form. And we'll come back to that later, so um, hold any questions on that for a moment. Then we get a number of other appearances in the Old Testament which are known as theophanies, appearances of God. And they come in various different forms. There are passages where there is an angel of the Lord who speaks as if he is actually the Lord himself. Uh, So angels will appear to people and speak, and, and it seems like the words that the angels are saying are actually the words of God. And the people respond to them as if the words that they're saying are actually the words of God. Um... The Lord appears in bodily form. Genesis 18 to 19 is a strange bit in the story of Abraham where you've got these three people that come and meet with Abraham and there's fierce debate over who that is. Is that the Trinity? Is it three members of the Trinity? Is it God and two angels? Is it? No one knows for sure. I had to preach on this passage a little while back. I didn't know for sure. Um, But there seems to be a sense in which in this moment Abraham is encountering God in some form. He doesn't know if it's the Father, Son, the Spirit, or if it's God and a couple of angels or or what. But he senses that in this moment he is meeting something of God, and it's mysterious. There are moments in Joshua, for example, Joshua 5, where it talks about the commander of the army of the Lord, who's this angelic figure (coughs) who seems to represent God. And there's this strange moment where Joshua um, worships the commander of the Lord's army and doesn't get told off for it. Like, if if you were to come and worship me, I... I would tell you off, and I think you're a bit weird, but because it's totally inappropriate to worship any person, anything, to worship an angel, totally inappropriate. I mean, compare it to Revelation, where John falls down in front of this angel and gets rebuked for it, because you shouldn't worship an angel, worship only the Lord. And yet, when Joshua worships this commander of the Lord's army, this angelic figure, he doesn't get told off, which suggests that perhaps, in some weird, mysterious way, this might be some kind of manifestation of God. It doesn't explain it, but It's just part of the mystery that builds up this foundation of the idea of God being more than just one, being three in one. There are various times when writers talk about a distinction within God. So Psalm 110, the Lord, and Lord there capitalized, it's it's Yahweh, it's the name of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, your footstool rather. (laughs) There seems to be this mysterious distinction within God. And I don't know what was going on in the writer's mind at this point. Uh, we We don't have access to knowing exactly what the writer was thinking, but there seems to be this sense in which he's able to describe the one God in ways that have this God talking to other facets of God, if I can put it like that. It's not explained, it's mysterious, but it's important. Or Psalm 45, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Therefore, God... Your God has set you above your companions. Your throne, O God, will last forever. Therefore, God, your God... Like, what's going on there? There seems to be some strange distinction between the person of God. Again, it's not explained, um, but it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, go for it. Mm. person in front of him. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think... Um, sure. 
Yeah, yeah. It seems to be, I mean, my reading of it seems to be quite literal. It seems to be this, this person standing in front of him. Um, and so I, I think most people would probably take it as actually some kind of literal appearance, um, but maybe of the sort of appearance that you get when you encounter an angel. Um, so the word of sort of literally is quite tricky because, you know, when an angel appears, are they literally there or is it some kind of revelatory visionary experience? It's hard to say, but I think it's of that sort. Yeah, that would be the way that I would, I would read it. Um, turn to Isaiah 63 for a moment if you have a Bible. Would someone read out Isaiah 63, verses 8 to 14? And as they're reading it, um, just note some of the fluidity about the way that God is described and some of the different words that are used for him. Would someone read those verses, uh, verse 8 to 14? Go for it, Ruth. So, um, throw out some different ideas. How, how is there sort of a, some kind of distinction within the person of God here? What are the things that strike you from this passage? Mm. Yeah, so there's God and there's this spirit, this Holy Spirit that gets sent by God. Yeah. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is grieved, yes. Um, which seems to be quite serious, isn't it? The, the serious consequences of the Holy Spirit being grieved. You know, which suggests at least that the Holy Spirit deserves better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 8, it talks about God becoming their saviour. And then verse 9, who is it that saves them? Well, it's the angel of his presence, isn't it? Yeah. So, so again, there's this strange sort of distinction there. God is the saviour, and yet it's the angel of the presence that saves them, the Holy Spirit. Um, verse 12, his glorious arm. I mean, here it just sounds like an arm, but actually there are other places where the arm is almost... Uh, talked about as if it's uh, even within Isaiah talked about as if it's uh, almost a, a figure in its own right I mean like I say this is not I'm not meant to prove to you at some point uh, like that in one sense people 
uh, thought, oh yes, I believe in the Trinity, like at this point. What I'm saying is that as they talked about God, they found that one way of talking about him didn't suffice. They found that they were inspired to talk in various diverse ways, which suggested that there are different ways in which God acts that are mysterious and they couldn't figure out until we get, of course, to the New Testament. Go for it. Well, are, this, are you asking me from my perspective or from Isaiah's perspective? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I don't know either. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. So what I would say is, um, uh, so looking back now, with an idea of the Trinity, that God is three in one, um, we can say that these diversities probably express different things about the Godhead. Um, was the angel of the presence... Is it Jesus? Oh, yeah, you floored me on the first question of the day. Um, it's hard to know. No, I, 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 don't, I don't personally take the angelic appearances in the Old Testament as if they are Jesus. Um, I think they are something of God, and it's not always clear whether they are a representative who so represents God that everything he says is taken as the word of God, but he's not actually God, or if it is actually God taking on some kind of visible form. Um, but even then, it's not clear if it's God the Father or God the Son. Um, it's all a bit vague, but I think that's kind of my point, actually, not to dodge the question. Um, but at this point, it really is vague. Um, what, what the people were grasping at when they're writing is that God works in lots of different ways um, and in order to describe the different ways that God works and reveals himself they need to use lots of different language so angels arm of the Lord spirit of the Lord etc and they were happy talking about this plurality within God even though they couldn't nail it down to particular persons if you see what I mean um, does that help a little bit Yeah, so, so you get this, uh, this spirit of the Lord. And, of course, if you read through the other prophets as well, they talk about the spirit of the Lord being active, but actually there being a day when the spirit is going to be poured out more readily. So it definitely is paving the way for a more clear Trinitarian understanding in the New Testament. Yeah, definitely. Let's carry on. Um, so word and wisdom. So in the, uh, I've said mainly post-exilic literature, so that's the literature that was written mainly after the period of the exile in the Old Testament, uh, God is seen to work through heavenly figures with divine attributes and powers. Uh, so if, for example, if you read Job 15 or 28 or Proverbs 8 and 9, uh, they're particularly interesting uh, passages to read you see them talk about wisdom uh, not in some vague sort of sense of knowledge or understanding but actually almost as some personified thing this person this this woman in proverbs 8 and 9 through whom god creates everything so wisdom is there at creation is involved in creation uh, and it's a bit strange when you read it and of course now we're looking back and we think yeah but you read John 1 and you, or Colossians 1 or Hebrews 1 and you get the sense that Jesus was involved in creation but I don't know what was going on in the minds of the people who were writing that where they had no such fully formed idea of what Jesus was going to be like but they were struggling for ideas and so they turned to these poetic ideas of wisdom or word being these personified um, beings like the activity of God personified in some kind of form to shape creation and bring about salvation. 
it's not entirely clear what's going on there, but I think it does lay the foundation for what we get in the New Testament, which we'll turn to in just a moment. Then, of course, in the prophets, you get loads of words about the Messiah, particularly in, in Isaiah, for example. Um, in Isaiah 9, we read it every Christmas, he will be called Mighty God. So there is this one who is coming, and their expectation of the Messiah was actually quite earthly. It was one like King David. It was someone who would come and be a great warrior, a great king, a great leader, and yet somehow he gets called Mighty God. In Micah chapter 5, it says that this Messiah, his origin is from old, from ancient days, uh, which is quite a weird thing to say about someone, that their origin is, is like way, way, way back. And of course, in a family tree sense, all of our origins are far back. But it seems to be saying something deeper than this. There is an almost eternal or timeless nature to this coming Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the Son of Man. We won't read that passage. We've looked at that in other sessions before. But it's this strange, mysterious picture of someone who is both a human being, Son of Man, um, and yet is strangely exalted, um, who comes into the throne room of God and is given victory over all the nations. And so this word, these words about the Messiah, this one who is to come, seem to have a strangely divine tinge to them in a kind of weirdly mysterious way. And then the Holy Spirit gets talked about quite a lot in the Old Testament. Actually, nearly 400 times in the Old Testament, the Spirit uh, or the Spirit of God is mentioned. Actually, the word um, ruach, which is uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, it can mean breath or spirit. So there are oftentimes, uh, in the Psalms particularly, it will talk about the breath of God. And if you were reading it in the Hebrew, you would read breath, ruach, spirit of God. It seems to be uh, that very often the Old Testament writers would talk about the, the active, powerful breath of God almost in a way that sounded like it was a person. Isaiah 63, which we just read, is a key example of that where he gets grieved. You can't just grieve breath. Like if I breathe on you and you don't like that, like I'd be grieved. Well, no, you'd probably be <laughs> totally within your rights to be grieved about that. But my breath itself wouldn't get grieved because my breath isn't a thing with feelings. Yet the breath of God seems to be grieved, which suggests almost there's a sense of personhood to the spirit uh, we'll go through this really quickly because uh, I want to get on to the New Testament but if you look at some of these texts Psalm 139 verse 7 uh, there's this sense of parallelism where the spirit and God um, are put alongside each other so that the things that are true of one are true of the other which suggests that the spirit may actually be divine in Genesis 1 Ezekiel 37 the spirit gives life which is something that God does as opposed to any other human being in Numbers 27 and 1 Samuel 16 the spirit empowers uh, in Isaiah the Spirit protects the verses that we just read. In Numbers 27 and Ezekiel 2 and 3, the Spirit dwells within people. In Isaiah 11, 42 and 61, the Spirit is linked to the Messiah. And in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 11 and Zechariah 12 and various other places as well, Ezekiel 36 and 37, the Spirit is a gift who is to be given. And of course, with the New Testament looking back, we understand more of that. But in these various different ways, through creation, uh, angelic appearances, distinctions within God, poetic ideas like word and wisdom, the coming Messiah, who is strangely, though a human being, also has this divine power, and the Spirit, these Old Testament writers were using just everything at their disposal to try and understand how God worked, and they just they had to go to a plurality of different terms to explain the way that God interacted with this world. It's mysterious, it's unclear, but it really, I think, paves the way for revelation that comes in the New Testament. Any question on any of that so far? I mean, we've just done the Old Testament in 10 minutes. <laughs> Go for it. 
Yeah, and actually we'll come to that in a moment. But the, the question, um, for anyone who didn't hear it and for the recording, was about in the New Testament, when in particularly John 17 and those chapters around there, uh, Jesus talks about um, him sending the Spirit who will be with us for all, all the time. That seems different from the Old Testament where the Spirit came for particular times, particular people, particular purposes. But yeah, I think that's right. I think in a different phase of uh, God's mission, the Spirit takes on more of a role um, and, and actually, that's what we see in all those pro- prophecies in Joel 2, Ezekiel 36 and 37 in particular. They talk about a time when the Spirit will be indwelling all of the believers. And so this was something they were looking forward to, even though they couldn't necessarily figure out how it would look. Jesus brings some clarity, and then from Pentecost onwards, the Spirit is available to all. Yeah. Yeah. Let's skip ahead to the New Testament. Well done for sticking with me. This is probably... Of all the four sessions we're going to look at today, this is the one where it's just like, bam, information. <laughs> and then next one will be a bit tricky um, because we'll grapple with some big ideas, but hopefully it'll be less just like first, 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 first. And then it'll get more practical as we go on, I promise. <laughs> but if we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that something has changed in the way that people think about God. And actually, the Bible doesn't always explain its development. Just like the Old Testament never goes, let me explain the Trinity in one passage. Neither does it ever say, oh, we used to think this, but now we think this, and here's the steps that we've made in between. So sometimes you actually have to try and work out how to piece together the developments that have happened. But we definitely see that there has been a development between Old Testament and New Testament. And of course, it comes with the person of Jesus. So Matthew 11, Jesus says these words, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. (coughs) And it seems there, I mean, this is obviously just one verse of many in the Gospels, but I think this sums up something of Jesus' relationship to the Father, where he talks about his relationship with God and this mutual sharing of knowledge, which I don't think any other human being has ever been able to express at this point. And of course, there are loads of other verses we could look at, and we will look at some of them as we go through. But I think Jesus comes with this self-understanding that no one else has. He calls himself the Son, relating to the Father, and he claims to share knowledge that the Father reveals things to him. Elsewhere, he says, no one has seen the Father except the Son, and the Son has come to reveal the father and so jesus talks about this stuff all the time i can't quite imagine what it would have been like to have been one of the disciples going hang on hang on tell me that again (laughs) like i I would far rather jesus was here explaining it today than me because i'm sure he would have done a great job of it and but as he's talking in this sort of fluid language you sort of imagine the disciples going oh jesus is talking about all these vague things that we have in the old testament never knew what to do with in a way that strangely relates to him unlike any other person who has ever been or ever will be And so you can kind of imagine them starting to understand through the things that Jesus was saying, oh, these vague metaphors, ideas, graspings of language that were poetic and we didn't know what to do with suddenly become a bit more concrete in the person of Jesus. And so what we find is that in the New Testament, and again, it doesn't always tell us the whole steps of development, but in the New Testament, from this point onwards, worship 
um, is explicitly binitarian, <laughs> um, by which I mean if trinitarian means to do with the trinity, three people, binitarian means to do with two people. And worship, I think, is explicitly binitarian in the New Testament, by which I mean people regularly, we have tons of accounts of people worshipping God the Father and Jesus the Son. So this monotheistic uh, idea of the Old Testament, there is fiercely only one God, seems to get unpacked slightly differently in the New Testament, where explicitly the Father and the Son get worshipped. Um, again, I'm not going to look at all these verses, but do check them out just to see that I'm not putting ink on a page just to make you go, oh, wow, there are lots of references, but they're irrelevant. Like, they are genuinely very helpful. Read through them um, when you have a moment. But you'll find that often Paul, for example, talks about um, or worships in the name of the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he seems to, as the object of his worship, put the two together, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in John 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 and 2 Timothy 2 and various places, um, people actually offer worship to Jesus, which, as I said earlier, like, you don't do to anyone who is not God. If you do, you get rebuked for it. It's idolatry. Yet people very quickly seem to be comfortable with worshipping Jesus in a way that was only really appropriate of worshipping God himself. In Acts chapter 7, uh, you've got an example of someone actually praying to Jesus, which again suggests that they saw him as divine and worthy of worship. <coughs> Since salvation is a work of God himself... When the Apostle Paul consistently describes Jesus as being saviour, this actually may suggest that there is a sense of divinity to Jesus. Since God is the one who saves and Jesus is our saviour, that may suggest that God is... Uh, sorry, that Jesus is God. I mean, that's quite a, a vague idea, but actually he makes it more concrete in passages like Titus 2, where Paul explicitly calls Jesus our great God and saviour. In 2 Peter 1... Um, Peter also calls him both God and Saviour. In Romans 10 and 12 and 14 and various other places, Jesus is Lord. Now, in one sense, that's just a, uh, a, a term showing his power, um, his ruling authority. It was a term that was used of Caesar. It's the word kurios. Um, and in the ancient world, you would have had to have declared that Caesar was Lord, Kaiser Curios. It would be a way of saying that he is the ruler. So it doesn't necessarily imply divinity, although in, um, in Roman thinking it often did, and people would have to worship this, this Lord um, sorry, two copies there, this Lord Caesar. And the word seems to be attributed to Jesus, which in one sense doesn't prove his divinity, but actually when you think that people were worshipping the Lord Caesar and suddenly they start talking about the Lord Jesus, it makes you wonder if actually they do also see Jesus as a divine figure, which coupled with the more explicit things like Titus 2, I think helps us to see that they really did see that Jesus is God. 2 Corinthians 4, Colossians 1, it talks about Christ being the image of God. Uh, Philippians 2, he is in the form of God, has the nature of God. Uh, Romans 9, 5 says more explicitly that Christ is God. Colossians 1 talks about the fullness of God dwelling in him, and he is in God, Colossians 3. In various other passages like 2 Corinthians 10 or Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 5 and so on, God and Christ are coupled together, as are the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. 
So it seems to be in many different ways, the New Testament is full of people talking about Jesus as if he is God, worshipping him as if he is God, praying to him as if he is God. He doesn't tell us how we got from the Old Testament to this new state of affairs, but it is very clear that the New Testament is explicitly binatarian in its worship. As they worship, they worship the Father and they worship the Son, Jesus. Any questions on that? Again, I'm aware I've just thrown a bunch of verses at you, but does that make sense? Okay with that? So where does the spirit fit within this? Because this is not a day on the binity. It's a, it's, it's a day on the trinity. Where does the spirit sit within that? Well, if you turn over to the next page... Whilst I think the New Testament is explicitly binatarian in its worship, I think it is also implicitly trinitarian in its worship. The way it expresses the divinity of the Spirit is more vague uh, than the way it expresses the divinity of Jesus, but it is definitely there if you work hard enough to find it. So the Hebrew word ruach is used 90 times for the Spirit in the Old Testament, where Paul uses the Greek word pneuma 115 times in his letters. I mean, compare the letters of Paul like that to the Old Testament. That's quite significant. That Paul uses the word um, for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, more times than the entire Old Testament does. Um, The Spirit in the New Testament has personal traits. I mean, like we saw in Isaiah 63, uh, he grieves, Ephesians 4, you can't grieve a force, a power, an electricity, um, a vague notion. You can only grieve a person. The Holy Spirit persuades, he intercedes, he testifies, he cries, he speaks, he creates, he leads Jesus and the apostles. So the Spirit is a person, it's not just a thing, it's not just a force. What's more, the Spirit has divine characteristics. He sanctifies, that he makes things clean. He gives joy in suffering. He opens people's mind to believe. He enables us to worship. He brings about union with Christ. He can be blasphemed, and lying to him is lying to God. So Acts chapter 5 actually is a powerful passage to look at, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where they, um, they lie to God about how much they're giving. And uh, in, the, in the accusation towards them, they're told that they lied to the Holy Spirit and they also say they lied to God. And the two are held in conjunction with one another, suggesting that lying to the Spirit is tantamount to lying to God himself. Paul refers to the Spirit in the same breath as the Father and the Son and thus considers the Spirit as God. In writing about the gifts of the Spirit, he refers to the same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God. And actually, if you look through Ephesians, for example, we haven't done it here, but you could look through the first couple of chapters of Ephesians and just find these triadic statements again and again and again where where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are put together as if suggesting that they share the same divine nature. Uh, oh, that's my next point. <laughs> Triadic statements link him to the Father and the Son. And there are a whole load of different examples there. He is called the Spirit of Christ uh, in Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1 and the Spirit of God's Son in Galatians 4. So what we see is that in the New Testament, explicitly the Father and the Son get worshipped and more implicitly, not quite as obvious, the Spirit is also included in that relationship as well. Uh, so one 
ancient writer Gregory Nazianzen says this, the Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly and the Son more obscurely. The New Testament manifested the Son and suggested the deity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clearer demonstration of himself. For it was not safe when the Godhead of the Father was not yet acknowledged, plainly to proclaim the Son nor when that of the Son was not that yet received to burden us further with the Holy Spirit. It was necessary that increasing little by little, as David says, by ascensions from glory to glory, the full splendour of the Trinity should gradually shine forth. Essentially what he's saying is in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was working hard to establish that there is only one God. And once you've got that, then it was safe to say, and this God exists in two persons, Father and Son but hinting as well there may be a three. And once you've accepted, oh wow, Jesus is God, then it's safe to say, and the Spirit is also God. And now the Spirit dwells within us and gives us revelation that enables us to read back through the Old Testament and go, oh, I see what they were striving at. It makes far more sense in the light of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Good. We've done the whole Bible. (laughs) Um, So we're done. (laughs) any questions on any of that no doubt you do have questions on that I'm sure and some of them we'll get to but um feel free to ask it and then I'll Mm Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, we will get to that. The, the very final session of the day, I want to look at um, worship and prayer. So we'll come to exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> mm. I can love myself, but that doesn't mean that I have multiple persons. Why can't God just love himself? Like the, the first point. Sure. I think the idea of loving self is quite a modern notion um, and, and I think actually w- when we talk about loving ourselves there are certain things we mean that are or we, we don't mean by that which are I'm not explaining this well. Um, to, to love generally, uh, to love another, involves a whole load of things that can't be included in loving self. So loving ourselves is quite a modern notion, I think, particularly as we think about self-esteem and those sorts of things. We want to talk about loving ourselves, which is obviously a very helpful thing to think about, but it's not a way that people have thought about love traditionally. Um, I think there are so many things in love uh, that actually require you to love something or someone else. They need to be different from you because there are so many things about choice, about difference, about the coming together of multiple things um, that are really tied up in the ancient classical definition of love. And I'd say when we talk about loving ourselves, that's a slightly different use of the word love, um, which is not the way that people would have used or understood the concept of love until probably fairly recently as we started to... Yeah, just use language differently. So, um, so does that make sense? So I'm, I'm sort of talking about more ancient sort of view of love. Um, yeah. Um, but if, kind of going off of that, if God is mm. God and so not bound by anything, he doesn't have to, like, play mm. by any rules, can't, like, can he just love, be love without anything else? 
Well, uh, yes, it does make sense. Um, <coughs> I think I'd say a couple of things to that. Like, I can't imagine what that would be like for God to be love without loving something doesn't actually make sense to me because I can't conceive of love existing with no object. Um, uh, even actually the idea of loving ourselves, which I do think is very different to the ancient view of love, it, it always has an object. I, can't, I don't simply love, I love a thing, an object. That's just the way that love sort of works. And I think that when, um, when we're thinking about the Trinity, we're thinking about the way that God has revealed himself to us and the words he chooses to use. And so when, and we'll come on to this in a moment, but when God reveals himself with ideas like father and son and, uh, and love and these sorts of things, in one sense, he is trying to express to us in language that we get something that's eternally true of him. But that language probably doesn't exhaust the fullness of who he is. It just gives us a framework that we can understand with our concepts. So I think... Um, I think God existing as love definitely is far greater than simply me loving another person or another thing. Um, and my idea of love doesn't exhaust the fullness of that. But I think in some sense you can draw comparisons between the two. So just as I can't love without an object, I think we probably can read that back into the love of God. And um, yeah, and sorry, does that make sense at all? I'm not convinced it made sense. <laughs> Would you also say that yeah. the relationship, I mean, God had a relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he calls us into a relationship with him. Yes. So he demonstrated that so that we can take that example and mm. have that type, same type of relationship. Yes. Yeah, it is it's all yeah, it is all to do with relationship. I think the fact that God the way that God has created us, that's maybe the way I was yeah. So the way that God has created us to love and to thrive in community, I think, reflects something of who he is. And so if we read the way that God has created us back into the Godhead, um, I think that's, one, that's kind of what that thought experiment was meant to be doing in some sense of, in some sort of way. So how do we think about love? What are the boundaries of love? How does love work and how, does it doesn't, how doesn't it work? Uh, and what light might that shed on the Godhead? Of course, recognising that he is very different to us. Um, yeah. This is all difficult because it's all grasping at concepts. Um, and like I say, the Bible doesn't explicitly nail down some of these concepts. But as we go through, hopefully it'll become more clear. And it does make sense that um, you know, love, love others as you love yourself. Yes. Which would indicate that love mm. yourself is part of... Yes. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so I'm not saying that's an illegitimate um, idea. But again, love has to have an object. So... Um, not love as others as you, as you love. <laughs> Generally, like there's always an object to love. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Adnan, and then uh, yeah, over here, and then I'll just finish the session. But yeah, go for it. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yes, yeah, good, uh, good question. So the point of the experiment was not to say there is only one word that sums up how God has eternally been, um, but to say pick one, and then some of them are deficient, like creator, because they depend on other things. Um, 
so holy is of course a perfectly good you know expression of who god is as his creator as a redeemer they're all perfectly good um holy has to do with uh, purity and also separation so i guess you could say in one sense um without there being anything for god to be compared to is he eternally holy yes he is because he's eternally pure um See, this is where I'm in danger of just saying something that I suddenly go, oh, no, no, let me backtrack on that, because it's difficult thinking about these sorts of things. Yeah, God is eternally holy in so much as he is eternally pure and perfect. Um, but I think, actually, his holiness becomes more starkly obvious when there is unholy things to compare him to, and then his holiness means that he is set apart from everything else. So, yes, God is eternally holy, uh, but we see his holiness more when compared to other things, unholy things. Yeah. One more question, and then I just want to finish this little bit, and then we'll have coffee. <laughs> and actually, if someone wouldn't mind just popping the kettle on, that would be great. If um, That would be amazing. Thank you. Sorry, you had a question. Oh, fantastic. I, uh, brilliant. Two, two in one go. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, let me just, just kind of end with this little bit on mystery. And, um, and maybe this will actually help to explain why I'm finding this so difficult to answer your questions and why we're finding it. And we will find it the whole day difficult to answer some of these questions. <coughs> God is mysterious. And the Trinity is a mystery. Um, and actually, if you turn over to the next page with some little pictures on it. Um, in Scripture, I think we see a developing revelation of the elements of Trinitarian theology. Uh, there is one God eternally existing and fully expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and we'll come on to unpack what that looks like uh, in a little while. But it gets revealed increasingly through Scripture. The Father is revealed clearly in the Old Testament and the Son is hinted at. In the New Testament, then the Son is clearly revealed as being part of the Godhead and the Spirit is hinted at. And then progressively through the New Testament, the Spirit is also brought in so that we understand that he is also divine. So by the end of the, the whole New Testament, we've gotten on this huge journey of revelation where we get this idea of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it is a mystery. It's not articulated at any one point, but the raw materials are there which get understood over time. And often we want to say that the Trinity is a mystery, and it is a mystery. But the way that the Bible uses the word mystery is actually slightly different to how we often use the word mystery. And I think it's quite interesting just to see how the Bible uses the word. And when I talk about the Trinity as mystery, I mean it more in the sense that the Bible does, which is this, that mystery in the Bible is typically something that... Um, was vague, was unknown, um, but has been revealed. And sometimes when we talk about the word mystery, we sort of mean it's unknowable and perhaps incoherent or, or something like that. But actually when the Bible talks about mystery, very often it's something that was hidden and is now revealed. So for example, Romans 16, it talks about the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. In Ephesians 3, it talks about the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, now made known. 
And very often in the New Testament, when it talks about mystery, it's referring particularly to the gospel and Jesus' plan or God's plan for redemption through Jesus. But the point is, it's kept hidden until the point where God reveals it. And now it's revealed so that we can benefit from it. And when the mystery gets revealed, that doesn't mean that we understand it exhaustively, but we understand it enough to benefit from it. I think that's the way that Paul is talking when he's talking about the gospel. It was hidden for ages, now it's been revealed to us. And now it's not suddenly like, oh, I get that, now I can move on. Rather, it's been revealed in a way that we benefit from it, we can experience the gospel, be saved by it. And actually, we can go on having questions about it all right into eternity that will finally get answered there. But this revelation of mystery means it was hidden, now it's revealed. Revealed. And when the Bible talks about the Trinity um, in various different ways, when it reveals the Trinity, or when the early Christian writers talk about the mysteriousness of the Trinity, it's that sort of thing they meant. Not that it's incoherent, not that it's unknown and will always remain unknown, but it has been hidden and it is being revealed to us so that we can grow in our understanding and our benefit from it. We won't fully exhaust it, but we can benefit from it even if we can't get our heads completely round it. And C.S. Lewis uses this example, which I think is kind of helpful, though a little bit confusing. Um, He says, imagine if you could only draw in one dimension, you would be able to draw a line, right? If you could draw in two dimensions, you would be able to put four lines together and create one figure, a square. If you were then to take six figures and put them together into a three-dimensional shape, you would have one solid body, which consisted of six figures, which consisted of four lines. And essentially what he's saying is, um, is that you build, as you add dimensions, you build your ability to create more complex things. But you don't actually leave behind the earlier levels, the earlier dimensions. The third dimensional shape is actually built out of one-dimensional things which are built into two-dimensional things which are put together into a three-dimensional thing. And he says, actually, if you lived in a world where you could only perceive, I don't know how this would be the case, but if you lived in a world where you could only perceive of things in two dimensions, then the idea of a world in which two-dimensional shapes could be put together into three-dimensional shapes would seem utterly baffling to you. You couldn't actually get your head around it. Although in a weird sort of way, if you really strained your mind, you might be able to get a taste of what that world was like, even if you couldn't see it in its full reality. And Lewis says that in a similar sort of way, that points to how it is with the Trinity. He says, as you advance to the more real and more complicated levels, you don't leave behind you the things that you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. He says, the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there, you find them combined in new ways, which we who who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive of a being like that, just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it. And when we do, we are then, for the first time in our lives, getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. 
It is something we could never have guessed, and yet, once we have been told, one almost feels one ought to have been able to guess it because it fits in so well with all the things we know already. You may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what is the good of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is actually being drawn into that three-personal life, and that may begin any time tonight, if you like, or this morning, if you like. <laughs> what he is saying is that, do you see the analogy? He's saying that actually, in, in, if you have very limited perceptive skills, you may be able to uh, understand one thing, one line. If you increase your perceptive skills and you add in another dimension, you may be able to see how two or four lines rather put together may create one two-dimensional figure. If you then take those, one dimension, uh, those two-dimensional figures and put them together, they can create a three-dimensional shape. If you only have limited capacity, you will never actually be able to see a three-dimensional shape, but you might be able to say, well, theoretically, I can kind of see how that works, even though I can't quite imagine what it might look like. It's similar with God. We can kind of get an idea of what it might look like to have three persons in one being, even if we can't quite dot every I and cross every T. That's what we're kind of trying to do today. We're grappling with a mystery which sort of makes sense and sort of doesn't make sense. But when it doesn't make sense, we recognise that that's probably because of our limited abilities and that if we lived on God's plane, it would make far more sense. The idea of the Trinity is not logically incoherent, it's not logically contradictory, it is out of our grasp. But I would put it to you that actually the mystery of the Trinity is not really because of the three-in-one thing. Uh, Actually, the mystery of the Trinity is because it's about God and we're not God. And even if you didn't have the idea of the Trinity, we would still not be able to get our heads around God. So my appeal to you is really don't get bothered too much today about the mysterious nature of the trinity it's obviously going to be mysterious because it's about god who is different from us lives on a different plane to us but i would put it to you that i don't think the trinity is logically incoherent it's difficult to get our heads around but as we start to get a taste of what it is it kind of starts to make sense of a whole load of other things passages in scripture things that we experience in our own christian lives they take on a new light in the light of this thing that we're grappling for yet won't fully ever get our heads around does that kind of make sense? <laughs> Man, I need, I need a coffee. So, <laughs> um, well done for sticking with me. So, like I said, we've got four sessions today. That one was a bit vague, esoteric, and like bam, 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 a whole load of verses. Uh, the next one, we're going to try and ground this a little bit more. Um, it will still be a bit hard going, but then after lunch, it will be more practical. We'll think about creation, salvation, and what difference it makes to our lives. So, I think we're over the first conceptually difficult bit the next one will be difficult for different reasons um but well done you've stuck with me through some tough stuff and uh yeah let's go and get coffee and be back in 30 minutes thank you for listening for more information or for further podcasts and downloads please visit christchurchlondon.org